Section three of Louis Lambert by Honore de Balzac. Translated by Clara Bell and James Waring. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. The third phase I was not destined to see. It began when Lambert and I were parted, for he did not leave college till he was eighteen, in the summer of eighteen fifteen. He had at that time lost his father and mother about six months before. Finding no member of his family with whom his soul could sympathize, expansive still, but, since our parting, thrown back on himself, he made his home with his uncle, who was also his guardian, and who, having been turned out of his benefice as a priest who had taken the oaths, had come to settle at Bois. There Louis lived for some time, but consumed ere long by the desire to finish his incomplete studies, he came to Paris to see Madame de Stael, and to drink of science at its highest fount. The old priest, being very fond of his nephew, left Louis free to spend his whole little inheritance in his three years' stay in Paris, though he lived very poorly. This fortune consisted of but a few thousand francs. Lambert returned to Blois at the beginning of 1820, driven from Paris by the sufferings to which the impecunious are exposed there. He must often have been a victim to the secret storms, the terrible rage of mind by which artists are tossed, to judge from the only fact his uncle recollected, and the only letter he preserved of all those which Louis Lambert wrote to him at the time, perhaps because it was the last and the longest. To begin with the story, Louis one evening was at the Théâtre Francais, seated on a bench in the upper gallery near to one of the pillars which in those days divided off the third row of boxes on rising between the acts he saw a young woman who had just come into the box next him the sight of this lady who was young pretty well dressed and a low bodice no doubt and escorted by a man for whom her face beamed with all the charms of love produced such a terrible effect on lambert's soul and senses that he was obliged to leave the theatre if he had not been controlled by some remaining glimmer of reason which was not wholly extinguished by this first fever of burning passion he might perhaps have yielded to the most irresistible desire that came over him to kill the young man on whom the lady's looks beamed was not this a reversion in the heart of the paris world to the savage passion that regards women as its prey an effect of animal instinct combining with the most luminous flashes of a soul crushed under the weight of thought? In short, was it not the prick of the penknife so vividly imagined by the boy, felt by the man as the thunderbolt of his most vital craving, for love? And now here is the letter that depicts the state of his mind as it was struck by the spectacle of Parisian civilization his feelings perpetually wounded no doubt in that whirlpool of self-interest must always have suffered there he probably had no friend to comfort him no enemy to give tone to his life compelled to live in himself alone having no one to share his subtle raptures he may have hoped to solve the problem of his destiny by a life of ecstasy adopting an utmost vegetative attitude like an anchorite of the early church and abdicating the empire of the intellectual world. This letter seems to hint at such a scheme, which is a temptation to all lofty souls at periods of social reform. But is not this purpose, in some cases, the result of a vocation? Do not some of them endeavor to concentrate their powers by long silence, so as to emerge fully capable of governing the world by word or by deed? Louis must assuredly have found some bitterness in his intercourse with men, or have striven hard with society in terrible irony, without extracting anything from it, before uttering so strident a cry and expressing, poor fellow, the desire which satiety of power and of all earthly things has led even monarchs to indulge. And perhaps, too, he went back to solitude to carry out some great work that was floating inchoate in his brain. We would gladly believe it as we read this fragment of his thoughts, betraying the struggle of his soul at the time when youth was ending, and the terrible power of production was coming into being, to which we might have owed the works of the man. This letter connects itself with the adventure at the theatre. The incident and the letter throw light on each other. Body and soul were tuned to the same pitch. This tempest of doubts and asseverations, of clouds and lightnings that flash before the thunder, 
ending by a starved yearning for heavenly illumination throws such light on the third phase of his education as enables us to understand it perfectly as we read these lines written at chance moments taken up when the vicissitudes of life in paris allowed may we not fancy that we see an oak at that stage of its growth when its inner expansion bursts the tender green bark covering it with wrinkles and cracks when its majestic stature is in preparation if indeed the lightnings of heaven and the acts of man shall spare it this letter then will close alike for the poet and the philosopher this portentous childhood and unappreciated youth it finishes off the outline of this nature in its germ philosophers will regret the foliage frost-nipped in the bud but they will perhaps find the flowers expanding in regions far above the highest places of the earth paris september october eighteen nineteen dear uncle i shall soon be leaving this part of the world where i could never bear to live i find no one here who likes what i like who works at my work or is amazed at what amazes me thrown back on myself i eat my heart out in misery my long and patient study of society here has brought me to melancholy conclusions in which doubt predominates here money is the mainspring of everything money is indispensable even for going without money but though that dross is necessary to anyone who wishes to think in peace i have not courage enough to make it the sole motive power of my thoughts to make a fortune i must take up a profession in two words i must by acquiring some privilege of position or of self-advertisement either legal or ingeniously contrived purchase the right of taking day by day out of somebody else's purse a certain sum which by the end of the year would amount to a small capital and this in twenty years would hardly secure an income of four or five thousand francs to a man who deals honestly an advocate a notary a merchant any recognized professional has earned a living for his later days in the course of fifteen or sixteen years after ending his apprenticeship but i have never felt fit for work of this kind i prefer thought to action an idea to a transaction contemplation to activity i am absolutely devoid of the constant attention indispensable to the making of a fortune any mercantile venture any need for using other people's monies would bring me to grief and i should be ruined though i have nothing at least at the moment i owe nothing the man who gives his life to the achievement of great things in the sphere of intellect needs very little still though twenty sous a day would be enough i do not possess that small income for my laborious idleness when i wish to cogitate want drives me out of the sanctuary where my mind has its being what is to become of me i am not frightened at poverty if it were not that beggars are imprisoned branded scorned i would beg to enable me to solve at my leisure the problems that haunt me still this sublime resignation by which i might emancipate my mind through abstracting it from the body would not serve my end i should still need money to devote myself to certain experiments but for that i would accept the outward indigence of a sage possessed of both heaven and heart a man need only never stoop to remain lofty in poverty he who struggles and endures while marching on to a glorious end presents a noble spectacle but who can have the strength to fight here we can climb cliffs but it is unendurable to remain forever tramping in the mud everything here checks the flight of the spirit that strives toward the future i should not be afraid of myself in a desert cave i am afraid of myself here in the desert i should be alone with myself undisturbed here a man has a thousand wants which drag him down you go out walking absorbed in dreams the voice of the beggar asking an alms brings you back to this world of hunger and thirst you need money only to take a walk your organs of sense perpetually wearied by trifles never get any rest the poet's sensitive nerves are perpetually shocked and what ought to be his glory becomes his torment his imagination is his cruelest enemy the injured workman the poor mother in childbed the prostitute who has fallen ill the foundling the infirm and aged even vice and crime here find a refuge and charity but the world is merciless to the inventor to the man who thinks here everything must show an immediate and practical result fruitless attempts are mocked at though they may lead to the greatest discoveries the deep and untiring study that demands long concentrations of every faculty is not valued here 
the state might pay talent as it pays the bayonet but it is afraid of being taken in by mere cleverness as if genius could be counterfeited for any length of time ah my dear uncle when monastic solitude was destroyed uprooted from its home at the foot of mountains under green and silent shade asylums ought to have been provided for those suffering souls who by an idea promote the progress of nations or prepare some new and fruitful development of science september twentieth the love of study brought me hither as you know i have met really learned men amazing for the most part but the lack of unity in scientific work almost nullifies their efforts there is no head of instruction or of scientific research at the museum a professor argues to prove that another in the rue saint jacques talks nonsense the lecturer at the college of medicine abuses him of the college de france when i first arrived i went to hear an old academician who taught five hundred youths that corneille was a haughty and powerful genius racine elegiac and graceful moliere inimitable voltaire supremely witty bossuet and pascal incomparable in argument a professor of philosophy may make a name by explaining how plato is platonic another discourses on the history of words without troubling himself about ideas one explains aeschylus another tells you that communes were communes and neither more nor less these original and brilliant discoveries diluted to last several hours constitute the higher education which is to lead to giant strides in human knowledge if the government could have an idea i should suspect it of being afraid of any real superiority which once roused might bring society under the yoke of an intelligent rule then nations would go too far and too fast so professors are appointed to produce simpletons how else can we account for a scheme devoid of method or any notion of the future the institute might be the central government of the moral and intellectual world but it has been ruined lately by its subdivision into separate academies so human science marches on without a guide without a system and floats haphazard with no road traced out this vagueness and uncertainty prevails in politics as well as in science in the order of nature means are simple the end is grand and marvellous here in science as in government the means are stupendous the end is mean the force which in nature proceeds at an equal pace and of which the sum is constantly being added to itself the a plus a from which everything is produced is destructive in society politics at the present time place human forces in antagonism to neutralize each other instead of combining them to promote their action to some definite end looking at europe alone from caesar to constantine from the puny constantine to the great attila from the huns to charlemagne from charlemagne to leo the tenth from leo the tenth to philip the second from philip the second to louis the fourteenth from venice to england from england to napoleon from napoleon to england i see no fixed purpose in politics its constant agitation has led to no progress nations leave witnesses to their greatness in monuments and to their happiness in the welfare of individuals are modern monuments as fine as those of the ancients i doubt it the arts which are the direct outcome of the individual the products of genius or of handicraft have not advanced much the pleasures of lucullus are as good as those of samuel bernard or of Bougon or of the king of bavaria and then human longevity has diminished thus to those who will be candid man is still the same might is his only law and success his only wisdom jesus christ mahomet and luther only lent a different hue to the arena in which youthful nations disport themselves no development of politics has hindered civilization with its riches its manners its alliance of the strong against the weak its ideas and its delights from moving from memphis to tyre from tyre to baalbek from tadmor to carthage from carthage to rome from rome to constantinople from constantinople to venice from venice to spain from spain to england while no trace is left of memphis of tyre of carthage of rome of venice or madrid the soul of these great bodies has fled not one of them has preserved itself from destruction nor formulated this axiom when the effect produced ceases to be in ratio to its cause disorganization follows the most subtle genius can discover no common bond between great social facts 
no political theory has ever lasted governments pass away as men do without handing down any lesson and no system gives birth to a system better than that which came before it what can we say about politics when a government directly referred to god perished in india and egypt when the rule of the sword and of the tiara are past when monarchy is dying when the government of the people has never been alive when no scheme of intellectual power as applied to material interests has ever proved durable and everything at this day remains to be done all over again as it has been at every period when man has turned to cry out i am in torment the code which is considered napoleon's greatest achievement is the most draconian work i know of territorial subdivision carried out to the uttermost and its principle confirmed by the equal division of property generally must result in the degeneracy of the nation and the death of the arts and sciences the land too much broken up is cultivated only with cereals and small crops the forests and consequently the rivers are disappearing oxen and horses are no longer bred means are lacking both for attack and for resistance if we should be invaded the people must be crushed it has lost its mainspring its leaders this is the history of deserts thus the science of politics has no definite principles and it can have no fixity it is the spirit of the hour the perpetual application of strength proportioned to the necessities of the moment the man who should foresee two centuries ahead would die on the place of execution loaded with the imprecations of the mob or else which seems worse would be lashed with the myriad whips of ridicule nations are but individuals neither wiser nor stronger than man and their destinies are identical if we reflect on man is not that to consider mankind by studying the spectacle of society perpetually storm-tossed in its foundations as well as in its results in its causes as well as in its actions while philanthropy is but a splendid mistake and progress is vanity i have been confirmed in this truth life is within and not without us to rise above men to govern them is only the part of an aggrandized schoolmaster and those men who are capable of rising to the level whence they can enjoy a view of the world should not look at their own feet november fourth i am no doubt occupied with weighty thoughts i am on the way to certain discoveries an invincible power bears me toward a luminary which shone at an early age on the darkness of my moral life but what name can i give to the power that ties my hands and shuts my mouth and drags me in a direction opposite to my vocation i must leave paris bid farewell to the books in the libraries those noble centres of illumination those kindly and always accessible sages and the younger geniuses with whom i sympathized who is it that drives me away chance or providence the two ideas represented by those words are irreconcilable if chance does not exist we must admit fatalism that is to say the compulsory coordination of things under the rule of a general plan why then do we rebel if man is not free what becomes of the scaffolding of his moral sense or if he can control his destiny if by his own free will he can interfere with the execution of the general plan what becomes of god why did i come here if i examine myself i find the answer i find in myself axioms that need developing but why then have i such vast faculties without being suffered to use them if my suffering could serve as an example i could understand it but no i suffer unknown this is perhaps as much the act of providence as the fate of the flower that dies unseen in the heart of the virgin forest where no one can enjoy its perfume or admire its splendour just as that blossom vainly sheds its fragrance to the solitude so do i here in the garret give birth to ideas that no one can grasp yesterday evening i sat eating bread and grapes in front of my window with a young doctor named miro we talked as men do whom misfortune has joined in brotherhood and i said to him i am going away you are staying take up my ideas and develop them i cannot said he with bitter regret my feeble health cannot stand so much work and i shall die young of my struggle with penury we looked up at the sky and grasped hands we first met at the comparative anatomy course and in the galleries of the museum attracted thither by the same study the unity of geological structure 
in him this was the presentiment of genius sent to open a new path in the fallows of intellect in me it was a deduction from a general system my point is to ascertain the real relation that may exist between god and man is not this a need of the age without the highest assurance it is impossible to put bit and bridle on the social factions that have been let loose by the spirit of scepticism and discussion and which are now crying aloud show us a way in which we may walk and find no pitfalls in our way you will wonder what comparative anatomy has to do with a question of such importance to the future of society must we not attain to the conviction that man is the end of all earthly means before we ask whether he too is not the means to some end if man is bound up with everything is there not something above him with which he again is bound up if he is the end all of the explained transmutations that lead up to him must he not be also the link between the visible and invisible creations the activity of the universe is not absurd it must tend to an end and that end is surely not a social body constituted as ours is there is a fearful gulf between us and heaven in our present existence we can neither be always happy nor always in torment must there not be some tremendous change to bring about paradise and hell two images without which god cannot exist to the mind of the vulgar i know that a compromise was made by the invention of the soul but it is repugnant to me to make god answerable for human baseness for our disenchantments our aversions our degeneracy again how can we recognize as divine the principle within us which can be overthrown by a few glasses of rum how conceive of immaterial faculties which matter can conquer and whose exercise is suspended by a grain of opium how imagine that we shall be able to feel when we are bereft of the vehicles of sensation why must god perish if matter can be proved to think is the vitality of matter in its innumerable manifestations the effect of its instincts at all more explicable than the effects of the mind is not the motion given to the worlds enough to prove god's existence without our plunging into absurd speculations suggested by pride and if we pass after our trials from a perishable state of being to a higher existence is not that enough for a creature that is distinguished from other creatures only by more perfect instincts if in moral philosophy there is not a single principle which does not lead to the absurd or cannot be disproved by evidence is it not high time that we should set to work to seek such dogmas as are written in the innermost nature of things must we not reverse philosophical science we trouble ourselves very little about the supposed void that must have pre-existed for us and we try to fathom the supposed void that lies before us we make god responsible for the future but we do not expect him to account for the past and yet it is quite as desirable to know whether we have any roots in the past as to discover whether we are inseparable from the future we have been deists or atheists in one direction only is the world eternal was the world created we can conceive of no middle term between these two propositions one then is true and the other false take your choice whichever it may be god as our reason depicts him must be deposed and that amounts to denial the world is eternal then beyond question god has had it forced upon him the world was created then god is an impossibility how could he have subsisted through an eternity not knowing that he would presently want to create the world how could he have failed to foresee the results whence did he derive the essence of creation evidently from himself if then the world proceeds from god how can you account for evil that evil should proceed from good is absurd if evil does not exist what do you make of social life and its laws on all hands we find a precipice on every side a gulf in which reason is lost then social science must be altogether reconstructed listen to me uncle until some splendid genius shall have taken account of the obvious inequality of intellects and the general sense of humanity the word god will be constantly arraigned and society will rest on shifting sands the secret of the various moral zones through which man passes will be discovered by the analysis of the animal type as a whole that animal type has hitherto been studied with reference only to its differences not to its similitudes and its organic manifestations not its faculties 
Animal faculties are perfected in direct transmission in obedience to laws which remain to be discovered. These faculties correspond to the forces which express them, and those forces are essentially material and divisible. Material faculties! Reflect on this juxtaposition of words. Is not this a problem as insoluble as that of the first communication of motion to matter, an unsounded gulf of which the difficulties were transposed rather than removed by Newton's system? Again, the universal assimilation of light by everything that exists on earth demands a new study of our globe. The same animal differs in the tropics of India and in the north. Under the angular or the vertical incidence of the sun's rays, nature is developed the same, but not the same, identical in its principles, but totally dissimilar in its outcome. The phenomenon that amazes our eyes in the zoological world, when we compare the butterflies of Brazil with those of Europe, is even more startling in the world of mind. A particular facial angle, a certain amount of brain convolutions, are indispensable to produce Columbus, Raphael, Napoleon, Laplace, or Beethoven. The sunless valley produces the Cretan. Draw your own conclusions. Why such differences due to the more or less ample diffusion of light to men? The masses of suffering humanity, more or less active, fed, and enlightened, are a difficulty to be accounted for, crying out against God. Why, in great joy, do we always want to quit the earth? Whence comes the longing to rise which every creature has known or will know? Motion is a great soul, and its alliance with matter is just as difficult to account for as the origin of thought in man. In these days science is one. It is impossible to touch politics independent of moral questions, and these are bound up with scientific questions. It seems to me that we are on the eve of a great human struggle. The forces are there, only I do not see the general. November 25th Believe me, dear uncle, it is hard to give up the life that is in us without a pang. I am returning to Blois with a heavy grip at my heart. I shall die then, taking with me some useful truths. No personal interest debases my regrets. Is earthly fame a guardon to those who believe that they will amount to a higher sphere? I am by no means in love with the two syllables, lamb and bear, whether spoken with respect or with contempt over my grave. They can make no change in my ultimate destiny. I feel myself strong and energetic. I might become a power. I feel in myself a life so luminous that it might enlighten a world. Yet I am shut up in a sort of mineral, as perhaps indeed are the colors you admire on the neck of an Indian bird. I should need to embrace the whole world, to clasp and recreate it. But those who have done this, who have thus embraced and remolded it, began, did they not, by being a wheel in the machine. I can only be crushed. Mohammed had the sword. Jesus had the cross. I shall die unknown. I shall be at Blois for a day, and then in my coffin. Do you know why I have come back to Swedenborg after vast studies of all religions, and after proving to myself, by reading all the works published within the last sixty years by the patient English, by Germany, and by France, how deeply true were my youthful views about the Bible? Swedenborg undoubtedly epitomizes all the religions, or rather the one religion, of humanity. Though forms of worship are infinitely various, neither their true meaning nor their metaphysical interpretation has ever varied. In short, man has, and has had, but one religion. Sivaism, Vishnuism, and Brahmanism, the three primitive creeds originating as they did in Tibet, in the valley of the Indus, and on the vast plains of the Ganges, ended their warfare some thousand years before the birth of Christ by adopting the Hindu Trimurti. The Trimurti is our trinity. From this dogma, Maginism arose in Persia. In Egypt, the African beliefs in the Mosaic law, the worship of the Kabari, and the polytheism of Greece and Rome. While by this ramification of the Trimorti, the Asiatic myths became adapted to the imaginations of various races in the lands they reached by the agency of certain sages whom men elevated to be demigods, Mithra, Bacchus, Hermes, Hercules, and the rest. Buddha, the great reformer of the three primeval religions, lived in India and founded his church there, a sect which still numbers two hundred millions more believers than Christianity can show. While it certainly influenced the powerful will both of Jesus and Confucius. Then Christianity raised her standard. 
Subsequently, Mohammed fused Judaism and Christianity, the Bible and the Gospel, in one book, the Koran, adapting them to the apprehension of the Arab race. Finally, Swedenborg borrowed from Magianism, Brahmanism, Buddhism, and Christian mysticism all the truth and divine beauty that those four great religious books hold in common, and added to them a doctrine, a basis of reasoning, that may be termed mathematical. Any man who plunges into these religious waters, of which the sources are not all known, will find proofs that Zoroaster, Moses, Buddha, Confucius, Jesus Christ, and Swedenborg had identical principles and aimed at identical ends. The last of them all, Swedenborg, will perhaps be the Buddha of the North. Obscure and diffuse as his writings are, we find in them the elements of a magnificent conception of society. His theocracy is sublime, and his creed is the only acceptable one to superior souls. He alone brings man into immediate communion with God. He gives a thirst for God. He has freed the majesty of God from the trappings in which other human dogmas have disguised him. He left him where he is, making his myriad creations and creatures gravitate towards him through successive transformations which promise a more immediate and more natural future than the Catholic idea of eternity. Swedenborg has absolved God from the reproach attaching to him in the estimation of tender souls for the perpetuity of revenge to punish the sin of a moment a system of injustice and cruelty. Each man may know for himself what hope he has of life eternal, and whether this world has any rational sense. I mean to make the attempt, and this attempt may save the world just as much as the cross at Jerusalem or the sword at Mecca. These were both the offspring of the desert. Of the thirty-three years of Christ's life we only know the history of nine. His life of seclusion prepared him for his life of glory, and I, too, crave for the desert. Notwithstanding the difficulties of the task, I have felt it my duty to depict Lambert's boyhood, the unknown life to which I owe the only happy hours, the only pleasant memories of my early days. Excepting during these two years, I had nothing but annoyances and weariness. Though some happiness was mine at a later time, it was always incomplete. I have been diffuse, I know, but in default of entering into the whole wide heart and brain of Louis Lambert, two words which inadequately express the infinite aspects of his inner life, it would be almost impossible to make the second part of his intellectual history intelligible, a phase that was unknown to the world and to me, but of which the mystical outcome was made evident to my eyes in the course of a few hours. Those who have not already dropped this volume will, I hope, understand the events I still have to tell, forming as they do a sort of second existence lived by this creature, may I not say this creation, in whom everything was to be so extraordinary, even his end. When Louis returned to Blois, his uncle was eager to procure him some amusement, but the poor priest was regarded as a perfect leper in that godly-minded town, no one would have anything to say to a revolutionary who had taken the oaths. His society, therefore, consisted of a few individuals of what were then called liberal or patriotic or constitutional opinions, on whom he would call for a rubber of whist or of Boston. At the first house where he was introduced by his uncle, Louis met a young lady, whose circumstances obliged her to remain in this circle, so contemned by those of the fashionable world, though her fortune was such as to make it probable that she might by and by marry into the highest aristocracy of the province. Mademoiselle Pauline de Villeneuve was sole heiress to the wealth amassed by her grandfather, a Jew named Salomon, who, contrary to the customs of his nation, had in his old age married a Christian and a Catholic. He had only one son who was brought up in his mother's faith, at his father's death, young Salomon purchased what was known at that time as a savanette of Elaine, literally a cake of soap for a serf, a small estate called Villeneuve, which he contrived to get registered with a baronial title and took its name. He died unmarried, but he left a natural daughter to whom he bequeathed the greater part of his fortune, including the lands of Villeneuve. He appointed one of his uncles, Monsieur Joseph Salomon, to be the girl's guardian, the old Jew was so devoted to his ward that he seemed willing to make great sacrifices for the sake of marrying her well. But Mademoiselle de Villeneuve's birth, and the cherished prejudice against Jews that prevails in the provinces, 
would not allow of her being received in the very exclusive circle which, rightly or wrongly, considers itself noble, notwithstanding her own large fortune and her guardians. Monsieur Joseph Salomon was resolved that if she could not secure a country squire, his niece should go to Paris and make choice of a husband among the peers of France, liberal or monarchical. As to happiness, that he believed he could secure her by the terms of the marriage contract. Mademoiselle de Villeneuve was now twenty. Her remarkable beauty and gifts of mind were surer guarantees of happiness than those offered by money. Her features were of the purest type of Jewish beauty. The oval lines, so noble and maidenly, have an indescribable stamp of the ideal, and seem to speak of the joys of the East, its unchangeably blue sky, the glories of its lands, and the fabulous riches of life there. She had fine eyes, shaded by deep eyelids, fringed with thick curled lashes. Biblical innocence sat on her brow. Her complexion was of the pure whiteness of the Levite's robe. She was habitually silent and thoughtful, but her movements and gestures betrayed a quiet grace, as her speech bore witness to a woman's sweet and loving nature. She had not, indeed, the rosy freshness, the fruit-like bloom, which blush on a girl's cheek during her careless years. Darker shadows, with here and there a redder vein, took the place of color, symptomatic of an energetic temper and nervous irritability, such as many men do not like to meet with in a wife, while to others they are an indication of the most sensitive chastity and passion mingled with pride. As soon as Louis saw Mademoiselle de Villeneuve, he discerned the angel within. The richest powers of his soul, and his tendency to ecstatic reverie, every faculty within him was at once concentrated in boundless love, the first love of a young man, a passion which is strong indeed in all, but which in him was raised to incalculable power by the perennial ardor of his senses, the character of his ideas, and the manner in which he lived. This passion became a gulf, into which the hapless fellow threw everything a gulf whither the mind dare not venture, since his, flexible and firm as it was, was lost there. There all was mysterious, for everything went on in that moral world, closed to most men, whose laws were revealed to him, perhaps to his sorrow. When an accident threw me in the way of his uncle, the good man showed me into the room which Lambert had at that time lived in. I wanted to find some vestiges of his writings, if he should have left any, there among his papers, untouched by the old man, from that fine instinct of grief that characterized the aged, I found a number of letters, too illegible ever to have been sent to Mademoiselle de Villeneuve. My familiarity with Lambert's writing enabled me in time to decipher the hieroglyphics of this shorthand, the result of impatience and a frenzy of passion. Carried away by his feelings, he had written without being conscious of the irregularity of words too slow to express his thoughts. He must have been compelled to copy these chaotic attempts, for the lines often ran into each other, but he was also afraid, perhaps, of not having sufficiently disguised his feelings, and at first, at any rate, he had probably written his love-letters twice over. It required all the fervency of my devotion to his memory, and the sort of fanaticism which comes of such a task, to enable me to divine and restore the meaning of the five letters that here follow. These documents, preserved by me with pious care, are the only material evidence of his overmastering passion. Mademoiselle de Villeneuve had no doubt destroyed the real letters that she received, eloquent witnesses to the delirium she inspired. The first of these papers, evidently a rough sketch, betrays by its style and by its length the many emendations, the heartfelt alarms, the innumerable terrors caused by a desire to please the changes of expression and the hesitation between the whirl of ideas that beset a man as he indicts his first love-letter, a letter he will never forget, each line the result of a reverie, each word the subject of long cogitation, while the most unbridled passion known to man feels the necessity of the most reserved utterance, and like a giant stooping to enter a hovel speaks humbly and low, so as not to alarm a girl's soul. No antiquary ever handled his palimpsests with greater respect than I showed in reconstructing these mutilated documents of such joy and suffering as must always be sacred to those who have known similar joy and grief. 1. Mademoiselle, when you have read this letter, if you ever should read it, my life will be in your hands, for I love you, and to me the hope of being loved is life. 
others perhaps ere now have in speaking of themselves misused the words i must employ to depict the state of my soul yet i beseech you to believe in the truth of my expressions though weak they are sincere perhaps i ought not thus to proclaim my love indeed my heart counselled me to wait in silence till my passion should touch you that i might the better conceal it if its silent demonstration should displease you or till i could express it even more delicately than in words if i found favour in your eyes however after having listened for long to the coy fears that fill a youthful heart with alarms i write in obedience to the instinct which drags useless lamentations from the dying it has needed all my courage to silence the pride of poverty and to overleap the barriers which prejudice erects between you and me i have had to smother many reflections to love you in spite of your wealth and as i write to you am i not in danger of the scorn which women often reserve for profession of love which they accept only as one more tribute of flattery but we cannot help rushing with all our might toward happiness or being attracted to the life of love as a plant is to the light we must have been very unhappy before we can conquer the torment the anguish of those secret deliberations when reason proves to us by a thousand arguments how barren our yearning must be if it remains buried in our hearts and when hopes bid us dare everything i was happy when i admired you in silence i was so lost in the contemplation of your beautiful soul that only to see you left me hardly anything further to imagine and i should not now have dared to address you if i had not heard that you were leaving what misery has that one word brought upon me indeed it is my despair that has shown me the extent of my attachment it is unbounded mademoiselle you will never know at least i hope you may never know the anguish of dreading lest you should lose the only happiness that has dawned on you on earth the only thing that has thrown a gleam of light in the darkness of misery i understood yesterday that my life was no more in myself but in you there is but one woman in the world for me as there is but one thought in my soul i dare not tell you to what a state i am reduced by my love for you i would have you only as a gift from yourself i must therefore avoid showing myself to you in all the attractiveness of dejection for is it not often more impressive to a noble soul than that of good fortune there are many things i may not tell you indeed i have too lofty a notion of love to taint it with ideas that are alien to its nature if my soul is worthy of yours and my life pure your heart will have a sympathetic insight and you will understand me it is the fate of man to offer himself to the woman who can make him believe in happiness but it is your prerogative to reject the truest passion if it is not in harmony with the vague voices in your heart that i know if my lot as decided by you must be adverse to my hopes mademoiselle let me appeal to the delicacy of your maiden soul and the ingenious compassion of a woman to burn my letter on my knees i beseech you to forget all do not mock at a feeling that is wholly respectful and that is too deeply graven on my heart ever to be effaced break my heart but do not rend it let the expression of my first love a pure and youthful love be lost in your pure and youthful heart let it die there as a prayer rises up to die in the bosom of god i owe you much gratitude i have spent delicious hours occupied in watching you and giving myself up to the faint dreams of my life do not crush these long but transient joys by some girlish irony be satisfied not to answer me i shall know how to interpret your silence you will see me no more if i must be condemned to know for ever what happiness means and to be for ever bereft of it if like a banished angel i am to cherish the sense of celestial joys while bound for ever to a world of sorrow well i can keep the secret of my love as well as that of my griefs and farewell yes i resign you to god to whom i will pray for you beseeching him to grant you a happy life for even if i am driven from your heart into which i have crept by stealth still i shall ever be near you otherwise of what value would the sacred words be of this letter my first and perhaps my last entreaty if i should ever cease to think of you to love you whether in happiness or in woe should i not deserve my punishment two you are not going away and i am loved i a poor insignificant creature my beloved pauline you do not yourself know the power of the look i believe in the look you gave me to tell me that you had chosen me you so young and lovely with the world at your feet 
to enable me to understand my happiness i should have to give you a history of my life if you had rejected me all was over for me i have suffered too much yes my love for you my comforting and stupendous love was a last effort of yearning for the happiness my soul strove to reach a soul crushed by fruitless labor consumed by fears that make me doubt myself eaten into by despair which has often urged me to die no one in the world can conceive of the terrors my fateful imagination inflicts on me it often bears me up to the sky and suddenly flings me to earth again from prodigious heights deep-seated rushes of power or some rare and subtle instance of peculiar lucidity assure me now and then that i am capable of great things then i embrace the universe in my mind i knead shape it inform it i comprehend it or fancy that i do when suddenly i awake alone sunk in blackest night helpless and weak i forget the light i saw but now i find no succor above all there is no heart where i may take refuge this distress of my inner life affects my physical existence the nature of my character gives me over to the raptures of happiness as defenceless as when the fearful light of reflection comes to analyze and demolish them gifted as i am with the melancholy faculty of seeing obstacles and success with equal clearness according to the mood of the moment i am happy or miserable by turns thus when i first met you i felt the presence of an angelic nature i breathed an air that was sweet to my burning breast i heard in my soul a voice that could never be false telling me that here was happiness but perceiving all the barriers that divided us i understood the vastness of their pettiness and these difficulties terrified me more than the prospect of happiness could delight me at once i felt the awful reaction which casts my expansive soul back on itself the smile you had brought to my lips suddenly turned to a bitter grimace and i could only strive to keep calm while my soul was boiling with the turmoil of contradictory emotions in short i experienced that gnawing pang to which twenty-three years of suppressed sighs and betrayed affections have not inured me well pauline the look by which you promised that i should be happy suddenly warmed my vitality and turned all my sorrows into joy now i could wish that i had suffered more my love is suddenly full-grown my soul has a wide territory that lacked the blessing of sunshine and your eyes have shed light on it beloved providence you will be all in all to me orphan as i am without a relation but my uncle you will be my whole family as you are my whole wealth nay the whole world to me have you not bestowed on me every gladness man can desire in that chaste lavish timid glance you have given me incredible self-confidence and audacity i can dare all things now i came back to blois in deep dejection five years of study in the heart of paris had made me look on the world as a prison i had conceived of vast schemes and dared not speak of them fame seemed to me a prize for charlatans to which a really noble spirit should not stoop thus my ideas could only make their way by the assistance of a man bold enough to mount the platform of the press and to harangue loudly the simpletons he scorns this kind of courage i have not i ploughed my way on crushed by the verdict of the crowd in despair at never making it hear me i was at once too humble and too lofty i swallowed my thoughts as other men swallow humiliations i have even come to despise knowledge blaming it for yielding no real happiness but since yesterday i am wholly changed for your sake i now covet every palm of glory every triumph of success when i lay my head on your knees i could wish to attract to you the eyes of the whole world just as i long to concentrate in my true love every idea every power that is in me the most splendid celebrity is a possession that genius alone can create well i can at my will make for you a bed of laurels and if the silent ovation paid to science is not all you desire i have within me the sword of the word i could run in the path of honour and ambition where others only crawl command me pauline i will be whatever you will my iron will can do anything i am loved armed with that thought ought not a man to sweep everything before him the man who wants all can do all if you are the prize of success i enter the lists to-morrow to win such a look as that you bestowed on me i would leap the deepest abyss through you i understand the fabulous achievements of chivalry and the most fantastic tales of the arabian nights 
i can believe now in the most fantastic excesses of love and in the success of a prisoner's wildest attempt to recover his liberty you have aroused the thousand virtues that lay dormant within me patience resignation all the powers of my heart all the strength of my soul i live by you and heavenly thought for you everything now has a meaning for me in life i understand everything even the vanities of wealth i find myself shedding all the pearls of the indies at your feet i fancy you reclining either on the rarest flowers or on the softest tissues and all the splendor of the world seems hardly worthy of you for whom i would i could command the harmony and the light that are given out by the harps of seraphs and the stars of heaven alas a poor studious poet i offer you in words treasures i cannot bestow i can only give you my heart in which you reign forever i have nothing else but are there no treasures in eternal gratitude in a smile whose expressions will perpetually vary with perennial happiness under the constant eagerness of my devotion to guess the wishes of your loving soul has not one celestial glance given us assurance of always understanding each other i have a prayer now to be said to god every night a prayer full of you let my pauline be happy and will you fill all my days as you now fill my heart farewell i can but trust you to god alone three pauline tell me if i can in any way have displeased you yesterday throw off the pride of heart which inflicts on me the secret tortures that can be caused by one we love scold me if you will since yesterday a vague unutterable dread of having offended you pours grief on the life of feeling which you had made so sweet and so rich the lightest veil that comes between two souls sometimes grows to be a brazen wall there are no venial crimes in love if you have the very spirit of that noble sentiment you must feel all its pangs and we must be unceasingly careful not to fret each other by some heedless word no doubt my beloved treasure if there is any fault it is in me i cannot pride myself in the belief that i understand a woman's heart in all the expansion of its tenderness all the grace of its devotedness but i will always endeavour to appreciate the value of what you vouchsafe to show me of the secrets of yours speak to me answer me soon the melancholy into which we are thrown by the idea of a wrong done is frightful it casts a shroud over life and doubts on everything i spent this morning sitting on the bank by the sunken road gazing at the turrets of villanelle not daring to go to our hedge if you could imagine all i saw in my soul what gloomy visions passed before me under the grey sky whose cold sheen added to my dreary mood i had dark presentiments i was terrified lest i should fail to make you happy i must tell you everything my dear pauline there are moments when the spirit of vitality seems to abandon me i feel bereft of all strength everything is a burden to me every fibre of my body is inert every sense is flaccid my sight grows dim my tongue is paralyzed my imagination is extinct desire is dead nothing survives but my mere human vitality at such times though you were in all the splendour of your beauty though you should lavish on me your subtlest smiles and tenderest words an evil influence would blind me and distort the most ravishing melody into discordant sounds at those times as i believe some argumentative demon stands before me showing me the void beneath the most real possessions this pitiless demon mows down every flower and mocks at the sweetest feelings saying well and then he mars the fairest work by showing me its skeleton and reveals the mechanism of things while hiding the beautiful results all those terrible moments when the evil spirit takes possession of me when the divine light is darkened in my soul without my knowing the cause i sit in grief and anguish i wish myself deaf and dumb i long for death to give me rest these hours of doubt and uneasiness are perhaps inevitable at any rate they teach me not to be proud after the flights which have borne me to the skies where i have gathered a full harvest of thoughts for it is always after some long excursion in the vast fields of the intellect and after the most luminous speculations that i tumble broken and weary into this limbo at such a moment my angel a wife would double my love for her at any rate she might if she were capricious ailing or depressed she would need the comforting overflow of ingenious affection and i should not have a glance to bestow on her it is my shame pauline to have to tell you that at times i could weep with you but that nothing could make me smile 
A woman can always conceal her troubles, for her child or for the man she loves. She can laugh in the midst of suffering. And could not I for you, Pauline, imitate the exquisite reserve of a woman? Since yesterday I have doubted my own power. If I could displease you once, if I failed once to understand you, I dread lest I should often be carried out of our happy circle by my evil demon. Supposing I were to have many of those dreadful moods, or that my unbounded love could not make up for the dark hours of my life, that I were doomed to remain such as I am. Fatal doubts. Power is indeed a fatal possession, if what I feel within me is power. Pauline, go. Leave me. Desert me. Sooner would I endure every ill in life than endure the misery of knowing that you were unhappy through me. But perhaps the demon has had such empire over me only because I have had no gentle white hands about me to drive him off. No woman has ever shed on me the balm of her affection, and I know not whether, if love should wave his pinions over my head in these moments of exhaustion, new strength might not be given to my spirit. This terrible melancholy is perhaps a result of my isolation, one of the torments of a lonely soul which pays for its hidden treasures with groans and unknown suffering. Those who enjoy little shall suffer little. Immense happiness entails unutterable anguish. How terrible a doom! If it be so, must we not shudder for ourselves, we who are superhumanly happy? If nature sells us everything at its true value, into what pit are we not fated to fall? Ah, the most fortunate lovers are those who die together in the midst of their youth and love. How sad it all is! Does my soul foresee evil in the future? I examine myself, wondering whether there is anything in me that can cause you a moment's anxiety. I love you too selfishly, perhaps. I shall be laying on your beloved head a burden heavy out of all proportion to the joy my love can bring to your heart. If there dwells in me some inexorable power which I must obey, if I am compelled to curse when you pray, if some dark thought coerces me when I would fain kneel at your feet and play as a child, will you not be jealous of that wayward and tricky spirit? You understand, dearest heart, that what I dread is not being wholly yours, that I would gladly forego all the sceptres and the palms of the world to enshrine you in one eternal thought, to see a perfect life and an exquisite poem in our rapturous love, to throw my soul into it, drown my powers, and wring from each hour the joys it has to give. Ah, my memories of love are crowding back upon me. The clouds of despair will lift. Farewell. I leave you now to be more entirely yours. My beloved soul, I look for a line, a word that may restore my peace of mind. Let me know whether I really grieved my Pauline, or whether some uncertain expression of her countenance misled me. I could not bear to have to reproach myself after a whole life of happiness, for ever having met you without a smile of love, a honeyed word, to grieve the woman I love, Pauline, I should count it a crime. Tell me the truth. Do not put me off with some magnanimous subterfuge, but forgive me without cruelty. Fragment Is so perfect an attachment happiness? Yes, for years of suffering would not pay for an hour of love. Yesterday your sadness, as I suppose, passed into my soul as swiftly as a shadow falls. Were you sad or suffering? I was wretched. Whence came my distress? Write to me at once. Why did I not know it? We are not yet completely one in mind. At two leagues distance, or at a thousand, I ought to feel your pain and sorrows. I shall not believe that I love you till my life is so bound up with yours that our life is one, till our hearts, our thoughts are one. I must be where you are, see what you feel, feel what you feel, be with you in thought. Did not I know at once that your carriage had been overthrown and you were bruised? But on that day I had been with you, I had never left you. I could see you. When my uncle asked me what made me turn so pale, I answered at once, Mademoiselle de Villeneuve has had a fall. Why then yesterday did I fail to read your soul? Did you wish to hide the cause of your grief? However, I fancied I could feel that you were arguing in my favor, though in vain, with that dreadful Salomon, who freezes my blood. That man is not of our heaven. Why do you insist that our happiness, which has no resemblance to that of other people, should conform to the laws of the world? And yet I delight too much in your bashfulness, your religion, your superstitions, not to obey your lightest whim. What you do must be right. Nothing can be purer than your mind, as nothing is lovelier than your face, which reflects your divine soul. 
I shall wait for a letter before going along the lanes to meet the sweet hour you grant me. Oh, if you could know how the sight of those turrets makes my heart throb when I see them edged with light by the moon, our only confidant. End of section three of Louis Lambert by Honoré de Balzac, translated by Clara Bell and James Waring. Read by Don W. Jenkins, Rancho San Diego, California, shaggybark.blogspot.com.